My text is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I'll read verse 2 as well. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. At this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's come to the end of a section um, in which he's completed a survey of the gospel. Chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, they present us with something which is unique. Uh, They present us with the most comprehensive survey of the gospel. And he ends this first section of his letter with a great peal of praise in verses 33 to 36. Let me read them again. So he's coming to the end of the doctrinal section, and he says this, All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counsellor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So he ends this first section with that glorious outpouring of praise. And now in chapter 12, what he does is this, he comes to the ethical outworkings of the gospel. The gospel has been received and experienced by sinners like you and me. I hope you've received the gospel. It's been received and it's believed in. And it's believed in savingly. And because of that, it has a vital impact upon our lives. We will, of necessity, live a different type of life. Do you remember? The old has passed away, the new has come. It's a new day, a new life, and it's under a new lordship. And now in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he brings to us a remarkable, comprehensive message. Uh, In just two verses, what he's doing is applying the gospel. Up until now, he's been um, expounding it, and he's applied it indirectly. But now it's all application. In these two verses, it's applying the gospel to us. And he's answering the question, well, if that is the gospel, how should we respond to it? What are we expected to do? And these two verses give us a wonderful picture to answer that 
question. And the apostle tells us three major things. We only have time tonight to think about one, but these are the three major things. There's a beginning. Responding to the gospel involves a sacrificial beginning. That's the first thing. Second thing is, there's an ongoing work. So as we begin the habit of Christian living, there has to be going on in our hearts, our lives, our innermost beings, an ongoing transformation. So that's the, an ongoing work. And then finally, all this leads to something, verse 2b, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we're going to think about responding to the gospel involving a sacrificial beginning. How do we start on, on this glorious road? Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Where does it start, Paul? This start begins with sacrifice. The sacrifice for which it starts is the sacrifice of your body to God. At the start, that's what happens. We sacrifice our bodies to God. It's a sacrifice of your body to God. And these verses are bathed in sacrificial terms. The language here comes from the book of Leviticus. You remember Israel? It's offering its sacrifices. And we're back with the Jews. It's all sacrificial here. Paul says, you begin this pilgrimage into the realities of Christian life with sacrifice. And the sacrifice is this. You offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God. What does that mean? Well, when you think of it, a sacrifice is something very real and it's painful. Do you remember, go back to Leviticus. Um, a Jew would bring a, a sheep, a goat, a lamb, or whatever. He'd bring it for sacrifice. And he was handing it over exclusively to God. No one else was allowed to touch it. A priest took it off him on behalf of God and then burnt it. And he did what required, what God required of it. It was handed over to God exclusively. And Paul means that here when he says to us, present your bodies holy, exclusively handed over to God. And it's more than that. Uh, it's not only that, but it must be completely given. When you hand over the sacrifice, it's irreversible. 
It belongs to the one to whom it is given. And so what we do is we hand it over out of our powers, just like the, the um, offering in the temple, as I've just explained, was. It doesn't belong to us anymore. Before you sacrificed your body, before you sacrificed, it was yours. But, but when you handed it over to God, it belongs to God. It belongs to the one who you gave it. You can't call it back. You can only steal it back. Remember in the Old Testament, that's where the prophets challenge the people are stealing from God. Here's the question. My brothers and sisters, whose body is that that you have brought to church this evening? Whose body is it? As you look at your hands, as you look at your feet, as you think, your eyes, what do you look at? Your ears, what do you listen to? Your tongues, what do you speak? Your imagination, the whole of the body and its parts. To whom does your body belong? <clears throat> if you're a man or woman of God, then your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It's been sacrificed to God. And there's no way forward without it. Only backward. But notice this. The sacrifice is a real one. But, but it's a special sacrifice. Remember in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of an animal, the animal was sacrificed, and then it was burned, sacrificed, slaughtered. You don't have to sacrifice your body with a view to slaughtering it or to let anybody else slaughter it, although some do. We've not been asked, have we, to, to sacrifice our bodies uh, with a view to having it slaughtered or to let anybody else uh, slaughter it. But um, my heart has been going out to Nigeria. I mentioned it this morning. And um, there, are, there have been 8,370 people slaughtered in northern Nigeria this year because of the gospel. There are, there are terrorist groups um, in northern Nigeria. As you know, northern Nigeria and southern Nigeria is divided. The south is generally Christian. The north is, is Muslim. And the Muslim population are coming down into the south and attacking those in the south. But there are also Christians in the north as well. And these are the people that have been slaughtered. Um, listen to this this is one incident at about midnight the wedding there's a wedding of a Christian couple at about midnight the laughter stopped and the screaming began heavily armed Fulani mil 
militants rode into the festivities on motorbikes, gunning down guests at random. By the time the terrorists sped off into the night, 21 Christians were dead and another 28 lay injured. I've got a photograph here, I won't show it to you, of a young Christian student, you've seen it so many times on the news, kneeling. And there's a young boy of 13 with a gun in his hand, ready to shoot the young Christian, the, stu the Christian student. And I could tell you, tell you much more about, about the situation there. Um, since January this year, the Adara community endured at least 65 terrorist attacks. More than 110 killings and 73 abductions of children and adults. Over 111 houses were raised, 32 whole villages destroyed, and 20,000 persons displaced. The, to the, the toll of Christian suffering is undoubtedly much worse because these figures reflect only the, the attacks we hear about. Many go unreported, and so on. There's a, the story of a, a pastor being shot. Um, he stayed to protect some people, and the terrorists came in and shot him in the back, and, and he died. So, though we're not asked to sacrifice our bodies um, in that way, I think we must remember that there are many people who are asked to do that. And praise God, they do it. Um, you know, and that's been the same throughout um, Christian history, isn't it? Do you remember the bishop who was asked to um, say Caesar is Lord? And he refused to, didn't he? And um, because of that, he was burned. And you can go throughout the whole of history. So, but we don't have to sacrifice our body with a view, um, with a view to it, to slaughtering it. It isn't that isn't meant here, okay? For us, we we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? What does it really mean? Well, it means this, doesn't it? It means to go on living for God. And that means your hands are available to God. You think of that. Our hands are always available to God. Your lips and your mouth are the Lord's. Your eyes from now on are the Lord's. And you make a covenant, don't you? With your eyes. Not to look upon anything unclean. So what he's saying is this, that the whole body, its parts, its functions, now belong to God. And really the only issue is, what does God want with my hands? What does God want with my voice? What does God want with my ears? What does God want with my mouth? What does God want with my body. That's the only issue. We belong to him. If you don't know.
God's will from day to day. Can't you see the reason you seem to be going round in circles? Paul says two further things. It is your reasonable service to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Why is it your reasonable service? Obviously because of the mercies of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's meant by this? All of God's mercies spring from mercy. Behind the multitude of his mercies lie, lie, lies God's mercy, God's compassion. And God's mercy and grace belong to each other. But I think God's mercy stresses this. It's grace to us in our miseries. That's wonderful, isn't it? God's mercy. I think it stresses that. It's God's grace to us in our miseries. It's a, it's a wonderful word, mercy. Grace in our miseries. What did God do in mercy and in grace for us, you know, miseries? He came himself. What did he come for? He became incarnate in his only son. Think of this, God with spirit wrapped himself in human clay, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. is a wonderful couplet, isn't it? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. It's another wonderful line, isn't it? Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld thy glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And think of this. In the beginning was the word, the Logos, the expression of who God is. In the beginning, he was there. He had no beginning. In the beginning, Jesus Christ was there. In the beginning was the Word. Right? And the Word was with God, which separated him from God. The technical term is just, um, it, it's just a uh, juxtaposition. God the Father and God the Son looking at each other and, and being amazed at the wonder that there is in each other. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then the Word was God. Three amazing statements, isn't it? And that Word, humanity, 
uh, divinity became humanity. That word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So what did he do? What did he do in mercy and grace for us in our misery? He came himself. What did he come for? He became incarnate in his only son. He wrapped himself in human clay. And, and what did he come to do? There are many answers to that question. But I think fundamentally, he came to sacrifice himself for us. He came to sacrifice himself for us. And I read a commentary some time back and, and think of angels talking in, in heaven. And one angel says to the other, what's he doing? He's going down to that place. That nondescript place. That uh, nowhere. Um, Bethlehem. What's he doing there? And, and what, what's he doing? He's allowing people to abuse him, to criticize him. Well, what's, what's happening? And then, and then he's taken to the cross. What's happening? You see? The wonder, the wonder of the angelic hosts in heaven looking down upon this, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to sacrifice himself. Why did the almighty God take a physical body to himself in Jesus of Nazareth? Um, was it be because he was coming to a place that was strange to him? Did he not know us? He's omniscient. Is he not omniscient? What did he want? What sent him from home? What sent him to the earth? You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. Alienated from God. Slaves to sin. We could do nothing about our situation. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And the wonder of the gospel is this. He loved us in our lostness. And, and he took a body in order not only to come alongside us as Emmanuel, but to come under our burden. He comes under our burden of sin and death and the curse. And he dies our death upon the cross. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, now Paul is saying this. Now, with your eyes on that great mercy and the mercies that flow from it, I beseech you, I beg of you, that by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. Remember C.T. said, if Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice too great for me to do for him. Have you come to the point 
in your Christian experience where you've presented your bodies wholly to him. Paul says one or two things more. He says, it's your reasonable service. It's reasonable. Think of the mercies of God. When you think of that, it's your reasonable service to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's really the only rational thing to do. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That love makes a, a reasonable, rational demand upon us. And it's only when you give your body you will realize sooner or later that it's then that you truly worship God for the first time. Let me explain. For this reason, what is worship? Many things, but at its heart is this. In worship, you tell and show God how much you think he's worth. That's what we do. How much do you think God is worth? Think this God who became incarnate. This God who died your death. This son of God who hung on the tree for you. A creature, a rebel, a sinner like myself. How much do you think God is worth? And you really don't begin to worship him until you give to him a body to live in by his spirit. Paul is telling us here to do it now, today. God wants your body in order to transform your mind and metamorphosize your, your whole human being. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord's glory came from within, wasn't it? It's a metamorphosism. And the end of the process, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God's. God's will for you. To approve it here and then in heaven with the spirits of just men made perfect. That it, that, it, that it is good and acceptable and perfect. And that worship will continue amongst the worshipful, worshipful hosts of heaven. Brothers and sisters, Paul is beseeching us here, and I'm beseeching you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me just say one thing about verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips' translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. That can happen, can't it? It can happen so easily. The world squeezes us into its mould. God give you the grace to, uh, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Amen.